calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This is Fear, The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox, Episode 2, and I'm your host, Pun Bandu. Enjoy. There are serpents everywhere she looks. In the coils of smoke rising from her cigarette. In the coins that gleam like scales from the snow-clogged storm drains, curled around the throats of her informants. Knox sees them as clearly as she saw the ones that pulled Craddock into the murk. It took her months to piece together what little she could find. But now, two weeks after the river swallowed him, all that's left is a molt. Sivarek's friends from the Odessa Club don't know much. She's used to this sort of thing, the dead ends and the runarounds. But there's something about this case that feels wrong. Like the head of the damned thing's been cut off, and now its body writhes away whenever she tries to grasp it. Why did John Craddock attack Sivarek personally? What was he after? What did he mean on the bridge? She reads Craddock's file again and again, but the letters slither off the page and go somewhere else, taking her mind along with them. When Ray Beaumont knocks on her office door a little after midnight, Knox jolts awake. The glass of rum she'd been nursing flies off her desk and lands with a crack on the floor. She curses, both because it's a shame to lose a drink and because it's a shame to be caught drinking alone by a man like Ray. A face like a knight and the attitude to match. Coat straining against his broad shoulders like his own personal suit of armor. Unfortunately, a lot of people in this city are too blinded by the color of his skin to see his character. City life's never been for him. Too much going on, too many people he can't save. But there aren't many other places he and Morgan could do the work they do. They understand that. Both of them do. But they've never talked about it, and neither of them is going to start now. Beaumont's eyes land on the fallen drink, on the pile of paperwork, on her. 
Morgan clears her throat. Why hadn't Danny warned her she had a visitor? Detective, she says. What brings you to my office? His mouth works a little as he studies her mess. She braces, but in the end, he says nothing about it. Instead, he quietly picks up her broom and starts sweeping up the shards. She hates him a little for it. Morgan gets to her feet. Just tell me what the job is. He refuses to surrender the broom. Possible homicide, he says. He dumps the shards into the least full trash can. The circumstances seem more up your alley than ours. Every few weeks, something like this will happen. Beaumont will show up in her office with a job, often one the other detectives don't want to take on or don't know what to do with. No one at the department trusts Knox's instinct for the weird, the way Beaumont does. But that still doesn't explain how he keeps getting past Danny. What was the point of having a secretary if he... She sighs. No, she can't hate Danny. And she can't hate Beaumont either. She glances back at the Sivarak file, at its shifting ink pages. Maybe, she thinks, this is some sort of lifeline. Maybe it'll help to get her mind off things. Hair of the dog, scale of the snake. She reaches for her coat. Where are we headed? 83rd and 5th, he says. And Morgan feels it then. A serpent coiling around her neck. She knows that address. It's Sivarex. Ray pulls up in front of a Beaux-Arts townhouse facing the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Two window boxes on either side of the ornate door probably look impressive in the spring, but in this weather, they're graveyards. Vines rake their nails across the building's broad face. One night, they're going to swallow this place whole. Not tonight. Tonight, it's the throng of officers that threatens it. The whole block's a shadow of blue and gray. Knox steals herself. It isn't hard to do. Nursing school gave her the first few lessons, war the next, and Kresnik, the master class. This is a job, that's all. But as she walks with Beaumont, the vines above their heads change into strange tendrils, and Knox wonders how long this night is going to be. His footfalls soon echo hers as they ascend the front steps. What can you tell me? It's really better if you see it yourself. Morgan, he says. Don't call me. The moment she reaches the drawing room, she realizes precisely what Beaumont meant. In the center of the room is a Persian rug worth more than Knox's entire life. She doesn't know much about Persian rugs, doesn't know what makes them so valuable. Is it the fine embroidery, the deep abiding dyes? Either way, she does know one thing. This one's ruined. Hades must have opened up somewhere above this room, from the looks of it. Huge smears of black residue mask the work of those long-ago artisans. The smears continue onto the walls, even licking at the ceiling. Several bookcases worth of old tomes are ruined for good, too. Some are pulled out of place, face down in the inky murk. But she does know better. For one thing, nothing in the room's been physically damaged at all only stained in that strange, oily black. And for another, the skeleton lying dead center on the rug is as clean as any med school replica she's ever seen. Automatically, she starts assessing it. Likely male, broken left tibia, 
about five foot ten. A slightly stooped spine. Property belongs to Volcan Sivarek. We think this is him. Best we can tell, he burned to death. She was hoping he wouldn't say that name. Shit. The old man might have been a bit off-putting, but this... Work. It's just work. Whoever hired Craddock was messing with something bigger than either she or Sivarek thought. She kneels down next to Sivarek's skeleton. The oily stains come to a stop only a few centimeters from the bone. He's laid flat on his back, his arms out, his legs slightly spread apart, like a child flung onto their bed. A pile of ash near one of his hands suggests a book, but the posture doesn't seem right for reading. Nothing in the room's been burnt, Knox says, leaning closer. Those aren't burn marks either. I know, Beaumont answers. But for a skeleton like that, the only other idea I had was some kind of chemical weapon. I called you in to ask if you'd ever seen anything like this before. He doesn't say, during the war, but she hears it in his voice. A softening of his tone, the slight hesitation in before. He doesn't mean to hurt her. That doesn't change the fact that he has. You'd see more of the body if it was a fire that got him. Flesh clings to bone in cases like that. Chunks of it, especially in the abdomen. With chemical weapons, nothing I've ever seen or heard about leaves traces like that. Beaumont says nothing, but someone else does. So, you're telling us you're useless. Knox didn't clock him when she walked in. Too focused on the body. But Falcone's working this case, too. Fiorello Falcone's folks must have come over hoping their son would earn his own slice of the American dream. He'd done that, but Knox often wondered about the price he'd paid. Falcone's the surliest suit on the job. The only thing that seems to make him smile is insulting other people. Mostly women, of course, but no one wants to listen when Knox points that part out. I'm saying I haven't seen anything like this before, she repeats. It isn't consistent with any weapon in my experience, chemical or otherwise. Falcone puffs on his cigar. That he doesn't blow the smoke right in Knox's face is an improvement on their working relationship. That's what I was telling my boy over here. I told him there was no need to call in a weirdo like you, but he wouldn't listen. Knox glances over at Beaumont. The muscles in his jaw work as he tries to restrain himself but his eyes are soft when they meet Knox's. Sorry, he seems to be saying. He can keep it. Dealing with Falcone is something she needs to be warned about, especially given how it would look if anyone realized she'd been working for Sivarek only a couple of weeks ago. Well, I'm sure you've got your own leads, Falcone, Knox says. Sure you'll have this solved in a jiff. She stands, already reaching for a cigarette. As she glances down to her lighter, she sees a little movement near the skeleton. A spiky dark weed growing up from the ribcage. No one else reacts. She takes a deep breath. The cigarette touches her lips. The weed shoots up, taller than her, sending tendrils out every which way. More of them. When she blinks, she can see them spreading throughout the city, scaling the sides of the Empire State Building crushing her favorite bodega on East Fifth, flowering from the mouths of onlookers. She lights the cigarette, 
Like ashes, the vision scatters. Yeah, I've got a great lead, Falcone says. He slaps a thick folder on Siverek's coffee table. Three grainy black and white photos stare back at Knox once he opens it. The Odessa Club's downtown office. Siverek sitting in his plush chair, gesturing toward a companion. Morgan Knox, blood streaking her shirt. The angle's close. Too close. That's you, ain't it, doll? Her fingertips tingle. This townhouse is beginning to feel like a bear trap. I was working with Siverek on the Craddock case. Where'd you get these? Right here, Falcone says. He's sneering now as he turns the pages in the folder. And they tell me we've got a known quack trying to con our victim only two weeks before he turns up dead. Siverek's a smart guy by the sound of things. How'd you get him to buy into your bullshit? Medical records with hallucinations circled in bright red. Her service record beneath that. Her medical discharge also circled. Black ink transcripts of interviews she'd given during the war. Notes alongside them in handwritten French. A quick pulse might as well be the roar of a Tommy gun. Knox can't keep herself in check. Weird. <laughs> you guys never think it's bullshit when I solve your cases for you. I was the one who cornered Craddock. If you read any of the interviews I did that night with your own damn officers, you'd know that. But I guess you want people to buy your bullshit. Falcone goes red. I'd watch your mouth if I were you. More pages turned. A photo of Kresnik, an article about his death, her high school diploma from back home, a receipt for the very brand of cigarette she just lit up, dated only two days ago, a discharge from her involuntary stay at the hospital, two photos of her smiling over drinks. She catches Beaumont's eye and shoots him a glare. Some night he is. What's he doing just standing there? Had he seen that dossier? He hadn't even warned her. After all this time, he hadn't even warned her. You know what I think, Falcone says. She doesn't want to know what he thinks. She wants to know how and why Siverek was putting together a fucking dossier on her like some kind of sick scrapbook. Something's wrong. She has to go. I think I want to ask you some questions about all this. I think I want to know why the old man had this file on you. I think I want to know what kind of nonsense you were filling his head with. If I gave a shit what you thought, I'd actually listen. Knox answers. But that's as far as she gets. There are two uniforms blocking the door already. Behind her, she hears the telltale rattle of cuffs. She could run. She could. She might even make it down the block. But not much farther than that. The area's crawling with cops. And if she goes with them, maybe someone back at the precinct can talk some sense into Falcone. They can only keep her for 24 hours, right? Unless they find something. Knox locks eyes with Beaumont as she raises her hands in the air. Fine, she says. I'll go. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. 24 hours is a long time with someone like Falcone. The questions come one after the other, locked in a cold box, her coat taken from her. The bare walls of the interrogation room stare back at her, and she sees, in the grout, a moss that will become a weed, a weed that will become a serpent, a serpent that will strangle, strangle, strangle. There are serpents everywhere. Doll, you're making this harder than it has to be, he says, the smoke floating in front of his eyes like he's some kind of oracle. Just admit it. You conned him. You've been conning us. Played a couple of tricks with some local punks, got in over your head, and now look at you. She doesn't look at herself. The mirror's not a kind place for someone like Knox. The visions are always worse. So she keeps her eyes on Falcons and tells him in a voice heavy with exhaustion, to fuck right off. He's going to slam the desk for the 50th time. Her head aches when the door creaks open. When she sees who it is, Morgan feels something like relief for the first time all night. Danny Donovan standing there with Morgan's coat over his shoulder, looking for all the world like a Lion Decker ad brought to life. His smile's as boyish as ever. As your counsel, Miss Knox, I advise not another word. Danny isn't her lawyer. He isn't even all the way through law school. But he's done a lot of reading, and he must have said the right things to the right people. That's Danny for you. The kid's so slick, it's hard to deny him anything he wants. Works for me, Morgan says. She tilts her chin at a fuming falcon. We done? We're done, regardless of what he says, Danny cuts in. He steps into the room and holds up Knox's coat for her. Still staring Falcone down, she stands, slips it on, and leaves the room before he can recover enough to catch her. Outside, the precinct's quiet, as it usually is in the middle of the night. Prying eyes nevertheless dig into her shoulders as she leads Danny out. Not that she cares right now. The second they hit the sidewalk, Danny slaps her shoulder. So, can I get my name on the office plaque? Having an emotion other than anger, feels like breathing for the first time. Keep that up and I'll consider it. She takes a sharp turn at the corner. Danny frowns. 23rd's that way, he says, because he's from out of town, and that sometimes means he states the obvious. Aren't we going back to the office? Maybe you are, Morgan says, but if I have to look at another case file, I'm going to scream. So I'm going to the bar. You just spent a whole day and most of a night being interrogated, and you're going to a bar? Morgan, you haven't slept in- And I'm not gonna sleep at the office either, she shoots back. It comes out harsh, and she regrets it immediately. She stops and shakes her head. Snowflakes fall from her curls. Just let me catch my breath for a night. Danny's a good kid, but he's a kid, and he's good. And there's nothing good or youthful about drowning your demons. He doesn't get it. But if Morgan keeps him safe, maybe he'll never need to. He sighs. All right, he says. But if I don't hear from you in a few hours, I'll stop by later, promise, she says. Morgan digs in her pocket for her wallet and slides him a few bills. Meantime, 
Buy yourself something nice for dinner. He narrows his eyes at her, but he does take the money. Six in the corner pocket. All the smoke in the world can't hide the glint in Dakota Slim's eye as she lines up her shot. The smoke can't hope to hide Morgan's smirk either, so she opts for sipping from her drink instead. She uses this as an excuse to gauge her odds. To make this shot, Dakota's going to have to bank the ball on the right. The cue ball has to weave through a labyrinth, hit the three into the seven, and put just the right spin on it without pocketing either ball. By the time Knox sets her drink back down, she's sure. You're never going to make that. Dakota doesn't dignify that with a response, not one with words. Instead, she draws the stick back and, without so much as testing the waters, drives it against the cue ball. A dame like Dakota Slim doesn't stand around waiting to see if she's called her shot properly. She lights up another cigarette and circles around the table. As the six sinks into the corner pocket, she winks. Always betting against me. I'm beginning to think you like losing, Morgan. Knox laughs, beginning to think you're right. She trades her glass for a cue. Time to line up a shot. But it's all a mess, all of it. A clusterfuck of colors and numbers. There's an angle buried in there somewhere, always is. But she's too exhausted to find it. Thought a detective would be better at playing the odds. It comes and goes. She draws back the stick. Closing one eye, she picks out her target. Maybe she can get the five. It's slinking off from the rest, near the right corner. Trouble is, she might sink the cue ball, too. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. One, two, three draws back. Knox can only watch, drink in hand, as the cue ball dives into the pocket. So, it's mostly gone now, Dakota says. Morgan finishes her drink. She sets it on the table, knowing one of those cigar girls will come around eventually. People said fairy tales were dead and magic didn't exist. But those people didn't know the simple joy of having a pretty girl refill your drink without your asking for it. Not entirely, Morgan says. She taps her temple. I knew you'd be here, didn't I? Dakota's eyes narrow. Not for the first time, Morgan thinks to herself that the woman is like a cat. The instant you think you've figured her out, she'll knock your abuela's good plates off the table just to see them break. The whole time she'll stare you down, just like this. You thought I'd be here. I've got good instincts. Dakota doesn't answer that, and Morgan doesn't press it any further. You can't, with cats. You've just got to let them be. Otherwise, they'll run. Morgan knows what that's like. It's what keeps her coming back to Santis, what makes her count Dakota as a friend. She can think of maybe five things she knows about Dakota for sure. Dakota isn't what her parents called her. She has a sister. She's from out west somewhere, maybe Chicago. She keeps odd hours. She's missed six shots in the entire time Knox has known her. In turn, all Dakota knows about Morgan is that she's a detective, keeps odd hours, and has only made about six shots. That's all they need to know about one another. It's good. It's freeing. 
being in a place like this. The smoke fills your lungs, and you know, on some level, that you're dying. But you don't mind. Everyone dies eventually. Why not die somewhere familiar? Not to mention, everyone here looks like her in Dakota. I'm not sure about those instincts, Dakota says, as she lines up her next shot. She doesn't need to smirk at Morgan while she does it, but she does anyway. Her eyes are dark as the night outside. There are plenty of people around, but the alcohol is warm in Morgan's chest, and she spent far too long in an interrogation cell to care what anyone may think of her. She leans on the pool table, near enough to brush against Dakota's backhand. Her skin's as brown as rum. What's there to doubt? She asks. Dakota stands back up from leaning over the table, languid as a sunset. It's hard to look away from her, so it's easy to miss when she picks up Morgan's drink. Cube clinks against Cube. She chuckles around the rim as she realizes it's empty. With another little smirk, Dakota touches the cold glass to Morgan's cheek. Most people have the good instinct to stay away from me, Morgan. Dakota says, What'll it be? More rum? The last thing on Morgan Knox's mind is more rum, but she'll take some, if Dakota's the one offering. Yeah, she says, and I'm not most people. Sure you aren't, Tiger, Dakota says. She picks up the glasses and heads for the bar, winking over her shoulder. The world's colder without Dakota around. Morgan leans back with a happy half-sigh. At least something's going all right tonight. No prying eyes, either. She doesn't really know anyone at Santis. That's the whole point. Everyone's trying to be something in this city. Everywhere, except here. Here, everyone's just trying to exist. She closes her eyes, takes a breath of the heavy, smoky air. Doesn't even need to smoke when she's here. This place is safe. This place, at least, is free of Miss Knox. Fresh-cut lavender hits her nose, all the more striking for how clearly she can smell it. In the din of the crowd, the woman sounds a little strange, but Knox still recognizes her voice before she opens her eyes. Siverek's secretary. She wants to scream. When she does get around to opening her eyes, the view's a striking one. The blonde is decked out in widow's netting. If it weren't for her voice, it'd be hard to identify her. Only the full, cruel curve of her lips is visible beneath it. Well, that and the rest of her. The dress she's wearing looks like it walked right out of Macy's, cut close in all the right places. Her collarbones exposed like the blade of temptation. Anyone that beautiful in the middle of the night is trouble, more so if they're ballsy enough to walk into a black bar at this time of night. I'm not on the clock, she says. Forgive me, says the dame. I thought... Morgan shuts her eyes again. She can feel this starting. She hates it already. I thought you were the sort of woman people came to for help. The secretary continues. That's what the dossier said. So, you saw that, huh? Morgan says. She grinds her teeth, pinches the bridge of her nose. Listen, I'm sorry about what happened to your boss, but I can't deal with it tonight. I need one night, okay? Just one night. I'll get to looking into things tomorrow. 
There won't be time tomorrow, the woman says. She sets her clutch on the edge of the table. Monsieur Siverek left something for you. I'm worried that whoever... Her courage flags. Her head dips. Morgan looks away while she dabs at unseen tears with a handkerchief. What did he leave me? Morgan asks. She can see Dakota from here, already heading back, and see the smirk on her face, shrinking by the step. Please, forgive me. I do not know, says the woman. She takes a key from her clutch with shaking hands and lays it in Morgan's palm. It takes everything in Morgan not to draw her hand back instantly. It's in a locker. You have to get to it before they do. Who the hell are they? Morgan says. She pockets the key without looking at it. You're talking like you know something about what happened. Like you know how that can happen to a body. A second drink joins the one in front of Morgan, slammed down by Dakota's hand. <laughs> Who's this? Dakota and the secretary exchange a glance. Morgan feels something in her die. She hates this. One night. Can't she have one night? This, Morgan says, is someone from work. Work, Dakota repeats. Right. Morgan winces. Before she can say anything to smooth things over, the secretary's already talking. I am Lucien Leclerc. Are you a friend of Miss Knox's or a client? A friend. Dakota answers, the syllable heavy. I'm sorry about this, Morgan says. I think I'm going to have to concede the game. There's a look in Dakota's eyes Morgan doesn't want to see again. Well, all right, she says. It isn't like you were going to win anyway. Can I talk to you for a second before you go? A chance. Morgan looks over to Leclerc, who nods. A couple of steps away is all the privacy they're going to get. I really am sorry about this, Morgan says. I had no idea. You make yourself easy to find. If you wanted to shake work off for the night, I could give you a few pointers. Morgan's known her for years, and this is the first time Dakota said anything like that. It feels like it might not happen again, but there's a key burning a hole in her pocket, and a man whose death demands some answers. I can't. There's a silence then. A silence that hurts worse than jumping from Siverek's office window. Then, at last, a sigh. Right. People to help, she says. It hurts, hearing it like that. Take care of yourself out there. Always do, Morgan says. Part of being a Seamus is knowing how to lie. It doesn't feel great to lie to Dakota, though. Feels like it goes against the unwritten contract of their friendship. Morgan tries to shrug off the feeling as she puts her stick back on the rack. And you take care, too. Always do, Dakota calls back. She downs the rest of her drink in one go. When Knox looks back toward Leclerc, the woman is gone. Pale as a ghost and just as elusive. That's how it's going to be. She finishes her drink, too, gulping it down before she can stop to think. Abe's probably with Danny back at the office. Maybe she can catch a ride with him. A few of the regulars tip their hats on the way out. She doesn't know their names, but she nods to them like they're all old friends. 
Up the stairs, outside the dingy, bottom-heavy windows, the world is different. The masks come back on. As she takes the first step up, she's conscious of that weight settling upon her, of the air getting colder and cleaner, of the late-night confessions around her fading into arguments outside. Vapor plumes up from her mouth. She tugs her jacket on a little tighter. You're listening to Fear, The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox is a Realm original production written by Kay Arsenault Rivera, Brooke Bolander, Gabino Iglesias, and Sunny Moraine. Performed by Pilar Uribe. Produced by Marco Palmieri. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Audio production, editing, sound design, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Fear is produced by Mary Osadolihi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Pun Bandu. Audio editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Osadolihi featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Fear by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.